Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo of the Royal Historical Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased to have with us Professor Matthias Heusler. Professor Heusler is Assistant Professor of Modern European History at Regensburg University in the Federal Republic of Germany. And today we are speaking about his book, Helmut Schmidt and British-German Relations. A European Misunderstanding. Welcome, Professor Heusler. Thank you very much. Uh, thanks for having me. Professor, what is the thesis of your book? Hmm, well, I, I should probably start by, by sort of talking about how I, I got to my uh, topic. So, um, as, as you can probably tell, I'm, I'm German, but I've lived in the UK for, for half of my life. Uh, and I was always struck how such similar similar countries could have such a different outlook uh, on Europe, on European uh, integration. Um, and that's something I, I wanted to uh, study. Uh, and then I came across uh, Helmut Schmidt, uh, the, the former uh, West German chancellor, and, and his life story. And, and he he seems to have experienced something similar. So he, he grew up as a as a massive Anglophile, he was after 1945, he was convinced that a European, a future European integration uh, could only be possible with uh, British participation. Um, he even abstained from voting on the Treaties of Rome in the German Parliament because he thought it wouldn't make sense without uh, Britain being part. Um, but then he became disillusioned um, during his time as chancellor from 74 to uh, 82, became disillusioned by what he sort of regarded as British half-heartedness, scepticism, negativity towards uh, European integration. By the end of his life, he said Britain uh, should never have joined. And that was a, I found this a very interesting um, narrative, also a very common sort of story. And it's something I wanted to, to disentangle uh, in my book. So, so rather than simply sort of retelling Schmidt's story, I've tried to deconstruct it, to historicize it, to, to situate it in its uh, appropriate uh, historical context by using um, national archives, Schmidt's private archives, uh, etc. And what I found, and this sort of brings me to the, the thesis of, of the book you, you asked about, um, that the story is actually much more complicated than, uh, than I initially thought. Uh, so yes, there, there were tensions over European integration during Schmidt's chancellorship, the renegotiation of EC membership, tensions about the European monetary system, the British budgetary uh, question. Um, but at the same time, there was also a lot of constructive engagement in the British-German relationship. There was lots of cooperation outside formal European community structures, particularly in a, in a sort of transatlantic context, in a kind of sort of reheating of the Cold War in the early 80s, where, where Britain and Germany sought to pursue joint European interests 
together. So what I conclude is that, that Schmidt's take on, on British-German relations, obviously not an, an accurate description of the relationship during his time in office, but that it reflects a particularly West German perspective on European integration, one that in the case of Schmidt was shaped by his generation's experiences, uh, by the country's post-war history in the 50s and 60s, and a view that clashed quite heavily with uh, British views on European integration, which were very different because they also went through a kind of very different uh, historical uh, context. You state in your introduction uh, in the book uh, that uh, your study is revisionist in nature as compared to the li existing literature on the subject of um, uh, the European Union uh, from 1956 or well, 58 onwards. Uh, how can how exactly is it revisionist uh, in terms of the subject matter? Right. So revisionist is, is probably a bit, a bit of a strong word, um, but there has been uh, a tendency um, in much uh, popular writing, but also in, in some of the historiography to sort of depict Europe, the European integration process, the post-European integration process as a sort of uh, ideal, progressive, um, sort of theological story of ever closer union where sort of the European countries are enlightened, kind of move forward and forward towards an eventual supranational uh, European uh, community, European Union, in which obstacles and setbacks are temporary and, and have to be uh, overcome. Um, what historians uh, like Kieran Patel, like uh, Mark Gilbert, uh, have done more recently is is to sort of uh, disentangle that story, to um, move away from the teleology and show that the process uh, was much more complicated, that there's no foregone conclusion, uh, that it went forward, but it occasionally also went backwards, that motivations were quite nuanced, the different states experienced it uh, differently, so kind of much more multi-layer perspective. And I think this is, is something um, what my book sort of kind of adds into or co contributes to uh, by, by sort of contrasting the um, German experience of European integration through the eyes of Schmidt uh, with the British experience of European integration through the eyes of his British counterparts like Harold Wilson, uh, James Callahan, Margaret Thatcher. I think we can see the different, the contrasting national perspectives, and perhaps we can also explain why some countries like Britain have found the whole thing rather more difficult than, say, uh, Germany. So, in fact, uh, your study is, uh, for lack of a better expression, at variance with the progressivist narrative uh, of uh, the um, European Union. Yes, I think that's a, that's a nice way of putting it, yes. Uh, did any of the post-1949 UK Prime Ministers and or Foreign Secretaries have a good relationship or good or posit very positive view of the Federal Republic, uh, much less um, have a, a close relationship in the sense of, say, that Sir Austin Chamberlain had a somewhat close relationship with uh, Stresemann in the 1920s? Mm. Yes, I mean... Um it varies quite, quite differently, of course, between personalities, parties, and so on. So Schmidt, for example, has a quite a strong relationship in the 50s and 60s with some uh, Labour politicians, 
uh, through the Socialist International, uh, like Dennis Healy, um, to, to an extent also um, Harold Wilson. Uh, in terms of prime ministers, foreign secretaries, in the case of Schmidt, uh, I think the, the most important person to single out is, is James Callaghan, um, who had a sort of very similar outlook um, to Schmidt. He's more close to the center of uh, left-wing politics. He comes from a kind of trade union background, so he's a sort of kind of tough uh, negotiator. He's not a sort of ideological thinker. He's more kind of kind of common sense man. And, and he got on with Schmidt uh, very well. And um, where Schmidt sort of kind of distrusted Harold Wilson because of his uh, tactics, because he didn't really uh, uh, speak out openly on, on his views. Um, with Callahan, Schmidt established a very strong, a very confidential relationship where they could sort of coordinate their policies behind closed door in, in telephone conversations and, and so on. And that really eased uh, the, the relationship uh, along. It did not uh, overcome the kind of differences in substance, say, about the European monetary system. Uh, but, but yeah, I, I think Callahan is certainly uh, one important person uh, to, um, to highlight. Also, of course, uh, Lord Carrington, who um, already cooperated with Schmidt when they were both uh, defense secretaries, uh, in, in, uh, 69, 1970, and who then, of course, returns as foreign secretary under Anna Margaret Thatcher, and, and, and the two also cooperate quite closely at times, even, um, so gang up against, uh, against Thatcher. You seem to indicate in the book that Schmidt's lowering view of the UK, as opposed to, say, France or the United States, was due to structural rather than contingent variables. Why exactly is that the case? Well, I think uh, Schmidt sort of um, comes into politics or, or in, in, into, not necessarily into office, but into politics in the, in the 50s and 60s with quite an, an idealized uh, view of uh, British uh, politics, of kind of the, the British role uh, in Europe. And he sort of starts... Uh, wondering why his British counterparts, with some of whom he sees quite close, don't really share this view. And, and at first, he's so inclined to put it down to personalities. He says, well, this is just because of uh, Wilson's uh, cynicism, Wilson's tactics, or this is just because of Thatcher's um, confrontational negotiating style, and so on. But actually, when, when you look at the the big picture of uh, Schmidt's uh, time in office and beyond, um, it is evident that, that uh, the two countries clash so heavily and persistently over European integration. Uh, I think that indicates that there are some bigger structural uh, reasons behind it, that it cannot be reduced to, uh, to personalities alone, even though they could occasionally sort of accelerate um, these uh, processes. But essentially what I think it boils down to is that for West Germany, um, um, particularly from someone of Schmidt's uh, generation, the European integration process had delivered in the 50s and 60s. It had enabled the country's uh, sort of economic recovery. It had enabled the country's uh, political uh, rehabilitation on the, on the international stage to some extent. For Britain, by contrast, it had never really quite worked uh, the same the same way. Uh, so, so Britain initially 
uh, is invited to join the European Council Community in 1950, is invited to join the European Economic Community in the, 19, in the mid 1950s, uh, but they don't. Um, they think the whole project will not succeed. It doesn't really suit Britain's uh, sort of global trading interests, uh, various other things as well. But then as the European community accelerates, as it becomes a success story, Britain wants to join, um, but can't. Is, is British membership is vetoed twice by the French president, uh, Charles de Gaulle in 63 and, and 67. Um, and then when Britain eventually uh, joins 1973, it joins at a time of heavy uh, political economic uh, crises. So, so for Britain, uh, European integration doesn't really have the positive rationale that it has for Germany and also doesn't really, is not really seen to deliver in the eyes of, of the British public in the 1970s. So, so I think these sort of, that history, prehistory explains these different views on European integration much more than the personalities that, that Schmidt sometimes indicates. How did uh, Chancellor Schmidt react to the Wilson government's attempt to renegotiate the terms of the UK's uh, entrance into the European Union? Um, well, Schmidt sort of saw through Wilson's strategy initially quite quickly, but then became doubtful. So the, so the background is that... Um, Britain had, of course, joined uh, in 1973 under a conservative government. The Labour Party was in, in opposition. Uh, and within the Labour Party, there were quite strong anti-EC views, so views that were against uh, membership. Uh, Wilson himself was personally in favour, but of course, he didn't want to lose control of the party as the party leader. Uh, so what Wilson did is that in opposition, he promised to uh, renegotiate uh, the terms of entry that uh, the Conservative government had renegotiated and then kind of put these renegotiated terms to the British public in a nationwide referendum. So he, sort of, he tried to outsource the issue from the Labour Party into national politics. And then when, when he gets uh, re-elected or gets elected, surprisingly, in, in, in 74, uh, he has to deliver on that promise. Um, so Wilson's entire strategy uh, is based on kind of presenting himself as a neutral, tough bargainer for for British interests uh, with his European counterparts. Um, and Schmidt understands Wilson's domestic posturing to some extent, but he also uh, wants to have a clear indication from Wilson that he is actually in favour of membership. So for Schmidt, uh, membership is so self-evidently in the British national interest that he can't understand what Wilson sort of pulls off this, this ploy and kind of wants to renegotiate uh, imports of Commonwealth uh, dairy products or Britain's contributions to the EC budget. Um, so there, there's a, a, a gap in, in the kind of the trust, the mutual trust that emerges. Uh, Schmidt says to Wilson, please, you know, I'm, I'm willing to help you in these renegotiations, but you've got to tell me that you're actually negotiating in order for Britain to stay in, that you actually are committed to British membership, uh, whereas Wilson sort of fears that this will jeopardize his neutral position in public. So he says, I can only say what I think about membership uh, once the renegotiations have been uh, completed. So, so there's this kind of gap in, 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 in mutual trust that, that emerges and the, the two never quite managed to, to overcome. 
How important to the internal Labour Party debate on the European on European Union membership was Chancellor Schmidt's speech at the Labour Party conference in 1974? No, it was it was very important in terms of um, presenting a different image of Europe uh, to the Labour Party. So that the conference was, of course, uh, quite hostile. Uh, to to EC membership, there were protests outside the street when when Schmidt uh, arrived, and Schmidt kind of comes in, um, speaks perfect English, makes some uh, funny jokes, I mean, cracks up the uh, the audience. So he presents a sort of nice face of of social democracy on the continent. So, so there was still a tendency in 1970s Labour Party at times uh, to see the European Community as sort of evil, cartelistic, capitalist uh, club, uh, so kind of castrating uh, socialism and, and the British uh, uh, British labour policies, uh, Schmidt sort of presents a nice face of kind of post-war social democracy on the continent. So he, he, he manages to kind of swing the mood a bit. Uh, has it made any difference to the views of... Um, of Labour delegates, uh, probably not. But but if anything could have made a difference, it was probably that speech. So it was incredibly well received, both in the press and in sort of the recollections of, of uh, some delegates afterwards. Would it be correct to say that Chancellor Schmidt found dealing with Prime Minister Howard Wilson to be at times maddening? Very much so, yes, very much so. And then frustrating as well, because Wilson would never quite show his cards. He was a very kind of secretive person, particularly in his final term in office. And Schmidt sort of placed a lot, Schmidt placed a lot of value in a trustful, confidential, eye-to-eye personal communication, uh, something he did with the French president, Giscard Stang, for example, and that's something Wilson never quite did and, and never showed his cards and Never moved. So yeah, it was frustrating for Schmidt, definitely. Would it be true to say that the first years of uh, Prime Minister Callaghan's time in office were the high point of Anglo-German relations during Schmidt's years as Chancellor? And if so, why? Very much so. I mean, we, we talked briefly about Callaghan before, but uh, he has a strong personal bond with Schmidt. There's a lot of trust. There's a lot of confidence mutual confidence, partly because of Callan's role as foreign secretary under under Wilson before. Uh, so the two managed to overcome quite a few protracted issues in the bilateral relationship, uh, like the offset agreement, for example, uh, like the um, discussion over the uh, nuclear research facilities, whether that should be based in uh, Britain or Germany. So, so quite a lot of potentially contentious issues get resolved easily by the two leaders, kind of circumventing some official channels uh, as well. Um, the, the tragic high point, of course, is uh, October 1977, the so-called Red Autumn, the kind of left-wing terrorism in West Germany, where Lufthansa plane is, is hijacked. Um, and then the um, Schmidt and Callahan cooperate uh, quite uh, closely, and, and Callahan um, sends military support to the Schmidt government um, in order to to storm the hijacked plane. Um, so that whilst Callahan is is in bonds, so, so that really is a moment of acute 
tension of, of prices in Germany and, and the two kind of stand uh, side and side and side in, in solving the issue. However, um, of course, it did not help to overcome the, the strategic gap that had emerged over European integration as evident in the British non-participation in the European monetary system, which is also under Callaghan. Why did the internal politics of the EU put a break on Anglo-German cooperation in this period? Mm, I, I think it's not so much uh, the inter-European dimensions than the British domestic uh, politics. Um, so Schmidt, after much um, wrestling with himself, eventually decides to uh, to go ahead with the uh, a development of a European monetary system, which basically meant that you would tie uh, European currencies together within a kind of very limited agreed band of exchange rates. So, so to make the European currencies more stable against the dollar. Um, and this is something where, where, where they, they try to get every EC member states, nine at a time, they try to get every state on board. And Britain is, is, is very, Doubtful, which is, is partly because uh, uh, Callaghan fears that it might be seen as an action that is targeted against the dollar, um, which it wasn't so much, but Callaghan fears it's perceived like that, but also because he thinks he can't really sell it to a skeptical British public uh, who doesn't really want to give up its independence uh, over its own currency, over the British pound. Uh, so, so eventually, um, there, there's a sort of kind of strategic gap. Uh, the Germans are quite quite happy uh, to to join the ranks to kind of be part of a European uh, financial system, whereas the British side, for both sort of intellectual and also domestic political reasons, uh, stands stands aside. What was uh, Prime Minister Callaghan's role as intermediary between Chancellor Schmidt and American President Carter? Yeah, so, so I mean, Callaghan is interesting because he's one of the few people who, who gets along, uh, who got along with both Schmidt and with uh, Carter, um, partly because of his, his sort of plain uh, spokenness. So um, the the relationship between uh, Schmidt and Carter is uh, is rocky um, at best. Um, there's no sort of kind of um, like-mindedness in terms of personality, in terms of character. But of course, they also clash heavily over um, economic policy, over the neutron bomb, uh, eventually over um, east-west relations as well. Now, now Callahan is is very good in kind of trying to ease these tensions. So he has a strong relationship with Schmidt, uh, where he uh, can can really get to the heart of Schmidt's thinking and, and sort of kind of uh, understand what really moves Schmidt. And then usually the next day he'd phone up Carter, he'd, he'd travel to Washington, and he'd say, "Well, look, uh, this is. I know you had a kind of testy exchange with with Schmidt, but the real reason is because he fears ABC." Um, so, so Callahan, in a sense, translates uh, Schmidt's uh, thinking to to Carter on a on a kind of more confidential uh, basis, and he sort of uh, tries to to ease these tensions and to kind of orchestrate a more joint uh, transatlantic policy, both in terms of economic policy and in terms of eventually NATO's uh, dual-track uh, decision. 
How did Chancellor Schmidt's relations with British Prime Minister Thatcher evolve between 1979 and 1982? Oh, yeah, that's a, <laughs> that's a disastrous one. Uh, but when, when Thatcher gets into office, um, quite a few West European politicians think that she would actually improve Britain's European policy. Uh, she, she was in a favor of Remain in the 75 referendum. Uh, she campaigned for it wearing a sort of kind of a hoodie with flags of, of European states. Uh, the Conservative Party is generally seen as being more pro-European than Labour at that stage. So, so when she comes into office, people in Europe widely expect a more pro-European policy. Uh, but then Thatcher very quickly sets out on a confrontational course in order to reduce Britain's uh, contribution to the EC budget, which for was structural reasons uh, concerned with the common resources principle and agricultural policy and so on, are disproportionately high. Uh, so, so Thatcher gets in with sort of all or nothing attitude that says, I, I really want to, uh, I need to reduce Britain's uh, contributions no matter what. Uh, she doesn't accept any compromise solution. She doesn't really want to uh, solve it through other mechanisms. She even threatens to block uh, some uh, British participation in the EC if she doesn't get her way. And Schmidt sees that as a sort of blackmail. Uh, and, and he thinks, well, if, if we are all in this together, we should find a way of solving this uh, in a more harmonious, less confrontational way, whereas Thatcher styles herself into this uh, uncompromising defender of British interests in, in Brussels. And, and that really puts, uh, puts Schmidt, Schmidt off. Uh, so they, they do cooperate quite closely in terms of transatlantic relations, but it really is the, the budget issue that, that sours their, their personal relationship. Now, in terms of Thatcher's uh, political theatrics, or I should say diplomatic theatrics, in hmm. the rebate issue, how much of that was um, posturing for purposes of putting across to the British public, as well as perhaps uh, to a lesser extent, the European Union public, the um, uh, basis of uh, the British demands, and how much of it was, in fact, purely uh, her own personality as how as she approached these issues. Mm, yeah, there, there, there's certain, there are certainly elements of, of both uh, in that. Um, so the domestic posturing for her is, is quite important. Uh, when she gets into office, she embarks upon this radical reform course, but the policies don't really pay off in the short term. Um, so, so, so actually her economic policies are widely seen to have failed in kind of 80, 81. And really, her fortunes only really turn around in, in June 82, in the Falklands War and so on. Uh, so, so she, in a sense, she needs or she uses the, uh, the European issue to, um, style herself and to kind of promote her leadership qualities in Britain. But as you say, there's also an element of Thatcher's own character. She, she really doesn't accept the logic, if there is any, uh, behind Britain's budget contributions. She's personally convinced that this is a real problem. And of course, she is used to a, a two-party sort of binary way of, of politics in, in the British political system with a kind of one clear opposition and one clear a party, so, so so that is in her political nature uh, to address this uh, controversially rather than uh, 
more consensually, I suppose. So it's it's really a mix of her personal character, of her intellectual conviction that this is, really is a problem, and of course, a heavy element of domestic posturing as well. Uh, how did the rise in East-West tensions beginning in 1979 impact upon Anglo-German relations? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it, it, it creates, it, it, in a sense, it drags Britain closer to uh, Europe. So in spite of all the talk about the special relationship and so on, and there are some geostrategic and economic realities um, that tie Britain closely to Western Europe and then make Britain more dependent on the Soviet Union. A geostrategic closeness, simple geographic closeness to the Soviet Union is one thing. Um, so Britain is, like West Germany, like France, concerned about the buildup of medium-range uh, nuclear missiles, the SS-20 missiles that could hit European targets but could not hit the United States directly. So, so the British also fear the, the emergence of a kind of nuclear strategic gap in that area. But also in terms of economic policy, uh, Britain, like the other West Europeans, trades a lot more with the Soviet Union and particularly with, with Eastern European uh, countries than the United States do. Of course. Um, and that really plays a part when we have issues like the Siberian gas pipeline, which uh, the United States uh, wants to stop because they think it props up the Soviet Union. It makes the West Europeans dependent on Soviet gas on on uh, on en- in terms of energy. Uh, but Britain really can't play along uh, because they have their own companies involved in the build up of the pipeline. Um, but they also have a lot more to lose from a worsening in East West. Uh, relations. So the uh, the waning of superpower detente, in a sense, drags Britain closer to Europe because they want to preserve and strengthen inner European detente, like France, like West Germany, like like others as well. Oh, Fon, given the high degree of Franco-German cooperation during Schmidt's years as Chancellor, would it not be the case that Anglo-German relations would always be something of a fifth wheel? even without the issue of the budget rebate? There's, there's something to it, certainly. Um, France and Germany are, of course, direct neighbours. Uh, there's a lot of um, bilateral cooperation uh, in addition to the European Community as part of the LSA Treaty, the Franco-German Friendship Treaty. Um, there is, of course, the founding myth of the European integration process as a kind of Franco-German uh, deal at, at the very heart. Um, it doesn't necessarily reduce Britain to kind of the being kind of fifth wheel. Um, when Britain joins the European community in 1973, uh, the prevailing wisdom in West Germany is that Britain had only been uh, left behind because of French exclusion, because of the Gaulle's vetoes, and that now there would be a sort of kind of triumvirate, kind of, kind of three countries at the heart that really matter. So, um, when Wilson gets into office, Schmidt sends him a note saying, well, actually, or he doesn't send him a note, he takes him aside at the first summit and says, well, actually, you know what, now that Britain is finally in Britain, France and West Germany, these are the three countries that really matter in Europe. And of course, in terms of economic policy, for example, uh, Britain, British interests are much closer uh, to to German uh, interests than, say, France. Um, Britain is a more kind of free trade uh, liberal-minded uh, nation, whereas, of course, France is, is a lot more protectionist. Uh, so there, Britain has a, this important role as being the only 
nuclear West European country that's fully integrated in, in NATO after France drops out of the military wing in, in 1966. So, so Britain has a lot of quite a few cards to play uh, as well. So I, I don't think it's a foregone conclusion in 1973 that Britain would always lag behind. So I think the the policy decisions like the referendum, the renegotiations, like the budget questions, they, they really um, they really sideline Britain. In a count, counterfactual, uh, would Anglo-German relations have been better if Ted Heath had stayed on as prime minister after uh, 1974? Would it have made a fundamental difference? Heath being perhaps the only UK premier not to view uh, Anglo-American relations as above those with the European Union. Mm. That's a that's a very good good question to ask. Of course, it's always uh, impossible to answer uh, to answer counterfacts, but we can we can speculate, I suppose. So, so as you say, he certainly has this kind of European mindedness. He certainly wants to strengthen the European Community. His policy instincts um, are more towards Europe. Uh, than towards the United States. Um, on the other hand, he wasn't really a character who could get warm with with other leaders. So I'm not sure how his relationship with Schmidt would actually have have worked out had he stayed in office. And of course, he is already under pressure during his time as prime minister. Uh, so when Britain joins the European Community, he only gets to vote through in the House of Commons with the support of some Labour MPs because some Conservative MPs had had abstained. Um, he has a lot of economic crises in, in Britain, so his kind of promise that Britain would benefit economically from EC membership is not really seen to have delivered at the time. So eventually, I think these uh, part political pressures and also domestic pressures would have restrained Heath's sort of Europeanness uh, quite significantly. Um, whether he would have done the whole renegotiation referendum thing like Wilson is, is, is a different question. If you wanted people to take one thing away from your book, what would it be? I think I would like like them to to think about different national, even different regional perspectives on European integration. So, so rather than, especially now in the climate of Brexit, rather than just saying, oh, Britain has never liked European integration, uh, Britain has always been the awkward partner in the European uh, Union, and so on, I think the book in a sense, encourages people to think about why that is and, and why countries that are quite similar in many respects, uh, like Britain and, and Germany, how these two countries could, could end up with such different views on, on the European integration process. With that being said, I would like to thank you very much, Professor Hausler, for being so kind to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you once again, Professor. Thanks for having me. It was a pleasure talking.